Good morning and welcome back to South Florida Sunday. Sharina with you. And today we are talking about shoulder and elbow injuries with our expert, Dr. Jonathan Levy. Uh, he is an orthopedic surgeon with the Levy Shoulder Center at the Paley Orthopedic and Spine Institute at the West Boca Medical Center. Now, if you recognize the name, it is no mistake because Dr. Levy is internationally recognized as a leader in shoulder and elbow surgery. And if I'm not mistaken, your practice is also the leading referral center for complex shoulder and elbow problems, right? Sure, yeah. So um, I was part of the uh, Holy Cross uh, orthopedic group for 16 years um, where I was chief of orthopedics there and uh, really established a tertiary care uh, referral center for complex and even the most simple um, shoulder problems, shoulder and elbow problems. And uh, since January, I joined the Paley Institute and have launched sort of a satellite in West Boca. Okay. And we've launched the Levy Shoulder Center. And, and it is a little bit of a misnomer just because it's not just shoulder injuries that I take care of. I, uh, I do elbow injuries as well. So shoulder and elbow surgery is my subspecialty area of interest. And yeah, I, you know, I've been able to maintain um, a, a steady, busy practice taking care of you know, simple, complex fractures, dislocations, uh, you know, tears, and uh, quite a bit of arthritis. And we do quite a bit of shoulder replacement surgery as well. Now, there are so many things that could cause a shoulder or elbow injuries from like playing sports, a fall, or aging sometimes, <laughs> accidents. Um, what are some of the signs that the shoulder injury might be serious and you need to seek uh, some orthopedic help? Yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely those that are serious enough that you don't even want to wait to get an appointment with mm. someone like me. You want to go to the emergency room. So if you have a significant fall and you think you might have felt a bone break uh, or you might have dislocated your elbow or your shoulder, those are, those are one of those things where you really just need to go to an urgent care center or an emergency room to get those acutely evaluated because you don't want to be with a broken, you know, a fractured arm that's dislocated. Um, they just require a little bit more of immediate emergency room type of uh, attention. But actually, the things that I see in my office the most, probably the most common shoulder injury that I see relates to rotator cuff injury. Mm, yeah, I had one of those. Interestingly, though, yeah, I mean, what's interesting about rotator cuff injuries, 80% happen with natural wear and tear. <laughs> and so you have sort of this, this event, we often say it's the analogy of, the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? You have this, this degenerative process that's occurring in the tendon, and then you have a seemingly simple event. You could be lifting a gallon of milk, and you feel something happen, mm. and then it tears. And, and that's, that's the 80% type of, okay, this is shoulder pain. We evaluate it. We find you have a rotator cuff tear. Those probably don't have an immediate need, but because you have a change in function that's mm. associated with that pain, well, all of a sudden, now you can't even lift your arms since blank happened, a fall or, or any kind of event. Then I think those are times you want to get checked out. That's telling you something changed abruptly. Mm-hmm. And a loss of function where you can't actually lift the arm is a pretty classic presentation for a, a tear. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you know exactly when that, that happens? Yeah, some people know because they, they okay, I fell. I fell. Mm-hmm. I heard a tear. I felt a pop. You know, there's some additional symptom that you think, you know, gives you a little bit of a clue, but no, with no question. If you have a change, you used to be able to lift around freely and now you can't. I think that's, that's your body telling you, okay, something might've just changed. What are some of the more complex shoulder surgeries that you normally perform? So I enjoy the complicated stuff. <laughs> um, probably the most complicated surgeries that I get to deal with 
are the reconstructive type of surgeries. Okay. So I always kind of divide what I do up into I can repair things and then I have to reconstruct things. So if I'm repairing things, that might be you tore your tendon, I need to repair it. Mm-hmm. Stay forward. But things have gotten so bad in its degeneration that you can no longer repair. And now we are into reconstructive. Now things change. And so sometimes it's people have had shoulder replacements that have been failed. And now I have to do complex reconstruction where, you know, dealing with um, running out of bone support for the implants that we use. There's mm-hmm. a variety of different real com- complexities that, w- that we get to when we're starting to deal with revision operations, meaning people have had surgery and then another surgery that failed and, you know, you're on your third, fourth, or fifth operation, now you're in this sort of reconstructive effort. It's no longer getting you back to normal. It's just trying to get things working. And I heard something about, like, a reverse shoulder replacement. What's that? Uh, who's a candidate? How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, so it's it, talk about a, a revolution in the field that you're a part of. So um, I joined, you know, I, I had an interest in shoulder surgery early when I was doing my training, and I decided to do a subspecialty fellowship in 2005. And there's a gentleman who's actually a, a mentor of mine and one of my close friends, Mark Frankel. And he had learned from the French about this operation called the reverse shoulder replacement, where you actually place a sphere, meaning a ball, on the old socket, which is typically flat. And what used to be the ball of the humerus, we switch it into a socket. And so reversing that articulation slightly changes the mechanics of how a shoulder works. It allows the shoulder to move without the need of a rotator cuff. And it changes the way, opens up the opportunity to to manage a host of different problems in the shoulder. And so when when I first started doing this in 2005, it probably represented about maybe 5% of all shoulder replacements done. And now the recent surveys show across the nation, probably 70 to 80% of all shoulder replacements are now being done as reverse shoulder replacements. So it's been a huge, wow. a dramatic change in sort of what we now probably look to as a standard of care uh, for a lot of the, the shoulder surgeries that we have to do when we're talking about shoulder replacements. So it's been great to be a part of that whole growth process. I wrote a whole host of the original articles on the reverse shoulder replacement. I've been lucky enough to be able to work with an incredible team of designers and, and help to design a number of the probably the last five generations of the reverse shoulder replacement as we continue to tweak things to try to make them better. Mm -hmm. So it's really been a great experience being a part of that really game-changing approach to shoulder surgery and opening up avenues and opportunities to help patients that we just didn't have reliable solutions for in the past. That's amazing. It's truly something that affects the quality of life of so many people around the world. Um, Is the reverse shoulder arthroplasty the same thing? Am I even saying that right? Yeah. Yeah, an arthroplasty is a replacement, and so a reverse shoulder arthroplasty is what we call that reverse articulation, the reverse bone socket change. Okay. okay. Now it's being used for really some very severe forms of shoulder arthritis, osteoarthritis, where the wear patterns are uneven, so you haven't worn it down just right down the middle, but you worn it off to one side, and it changes the way to re- it changes the angles of the joint. Uh, we use it in the setting of really bad fractures of mm-hmm. the shoulder. Um, so that's a, that's also a common use, and it's become the sort of the the way we approach almost every revision shoulder replacement surgery. I, I hate to say everyone, but a good you know probably ninety percent of the revision shoulder surgeries that we're doing are, are being done with a reverse shoulder replacement. So those are the kind of the the common 
uh, reasons. Um, and then there's a variety of other reconstructive efforts like that fracture that have healed badly or fractures that never healed. Mm. But there's a few other uh, other reasons we do it. But actually the classic is this rotator cuff tear arthropathy. That's what it was originally designed for. Uh, how long does that typically last on, in like the average person that gets it done? That is an awesome question. And I wish that we had enough data to answer it. So I can tell you that we now have a um, large series of patients that are reaching 10 years. Okay. And remember, this, this, this just got launched in, let's say, 2005. And really, did, when it was first being used, it was being used in really um, lower-demand um, patients, probably in their 70s and 80s. And so, unfortunately, we don't get 15-year follow-up on a lot of those patients just mm-hmm. because they pass. So now we're starting to use it in younger patients. We're going to start to see... How do people do at 15 and 20 years? I, I can tell you at 10 years, we're not seeing deterioration in function. We're not seeing concerning x-rays that we're worrying about. So I think the data, as we push into 15 and 20 years, mm-hmm. we're going to have pretty, you know, pretty, um, pretty strong uh, uh, evidence to support its, its long-term use. So I, when I counsel my patients, you know, I tell them, you know, I, I'd like to tell you it's going to be a, a, a 15, 16 years, but we don't know how this fails. It can wear out in a variety of different ways. But rest assured, so far, in the cases where I've seen early failures and I've had to revise them, I've been able to successfully rescue them and get them back to function. You also offer some fracture care, too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we, I, I don't take emergency room call, okay. but I still probably about 15% of my practice is treating fractures, which means patients have injuries. They go to the emergency room, they find out they have a fracture, and then they find their way to my office. Mm-hmm. And so depending on what's broken and how badly it's broken, really would dictate the treatment. And I think that decision-making is really the critical decision, right? It's what you do when you first evaluate a fracture that really predicts how patients will do, whether you choose to not operate or to uh, operate and fix the fracture or even operate and replace the joint that was fractured. Getting that, that appropriate assessment to make the right decision at the beginning really is, is really the most important, important thing. And, and I can tell you when it comes to fractures, my front desk knows those patients get added onto my schedule. So <laughs> that's a little, you know, a little secret. I don't want to miss the opportunity to make the decision at the right period of time. So we, we do try to be sensitive to that and try to over, overbook patients when they need to come in with fracture value, for a fracture evaluation. That's amazing because I actually, I did experience a fracture. It was in my ankle and I went to the emergency room for it and all they did was kind of like gave me a brace and like some Motrin and told me to go home and there was just stay off of it. There was nothing they could do about it. Yeah, it it kind of depends on how bad the fracture is. And, uh, you know, the emergency room team's job is to to triage, to say, okay, this one is so severe we have to admit the patient to the hospital and get an orthopedic surgeon in right away to fix it. Or... This fracture is amenable, looks like it should heal, and we just got to give it the time to heal. And they're making that initial evaluation, Mm -hmm. but sometimes you need that subspecialist to really understand exactly, is this something, you know, even the ER docs will say, oh, you know, I'm not sure what the the surgeon's going to want to do here. Um, Wait till you get that that follow-up appointment, here's a doc you should go see. Oh, yeah, that's when they prefer, okay, I understand that. Yeah, that's when you got to get the opinion. If it's a fracture that's seemingly a, a minor fracture, I still recommend seeing your orthopedic surgeon and follow up, but at least get the triage from the emergency room to say, okay, this one is really bad or this one looks like it should be okay. Do you also offer non-surgical shoulder, elbow, bicep care? Absolutely. I I, I kind of joke. You know, I have a uh, a shoulder and elbow fellow who works with me every year on a 10th fellow, 
And uh, I always joke in the beginning of the year, I said, you're going to realize that 50% of the people come into my office thinking they need surgery and I need to talk them out of it. And the other <laughs> half are ready for surgery and book it. It'll probably uh, be me. And, <laughs> <laughs> we do it all the time. I give cortisone injections, we do PRP injections, there's a variety of non-surgical treatments. We have great relationships with physical therapists. A variety of non-surgical efforts are being used all the time to treat patients. And there's so many of the operations I do that are really the patient's choice when they're ready. And so I don't mm. ever force surgery on people in those sort of seemingly more elective decisions like, am I ready to have my shoulder replaced? Those are decisions that are personal, mm. and affected by how your quality of life is independently influenced. And I can always, you know, my job is to say, okay, you're a candidate for this operation when you feel you're ready. And then, you know, when you're ready, then we get serious and we start the planning process. Has there been a time where you looked at the non-surgical aspect of it first and then uh, you're like, okay, well, that didn't work. I'm going to go on to the next phase. I'd like to say that's my rule. Not, very few things where I look a patient in the eye and say, you can't wait on this. We've got to operate. I, you know, I think there's always choices in life and, and the choice to live even with, you know, loss of function and pain is still a choice. It's not one that people often choose, but, but I think you have to embrace the opportunity of, of using surgery as a last resort option for most, most decisions. And there are times where I think it might make a difference and I'll let you know when that happens. But um, non-surgical treatment is always the first thing on my mind. Mm-hmm. And as much as I enjoy operating, I want to have good results. And picking the right timing and the right patience is all about kind of making sure you have the best results. That was Dr. Levy with the Levy Shoulder Center at the Paley Orthopedic and Spine Institute at West Boca Medical Center. How can people get in touch with you, set up an appointment, learn more? Yeah, so our, our, our office phone number is 561-922-9112. There's information on the paleyinstitute.org website, P-A-L-E-Y-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E.org. Uh, as well as information on my personal website, which is shoulder-and-elbow.com. And um, plenty of opportunities to learn about a lot of the common things that we treat. Um, but certainly if you have any issues, call, make an appointment, and we do our best to, to make sure that between myself, my two physician assistants, uh, my athletic trainer, and my uh, shoulder and elbow fellow, that we have plenty of hands on deck to be able to help out and, and get patients' appointments in, in as expedited fashion as best we can. All right. Well, there you have it. Thanks for chatting with us, Dr. Levy.